Deep in the Rocky Mountains, outside of Cook City, Montana, there's a glacier that's melting. It sits at an elevation of around 11,000 feet, and in its heyday, it was miles wide. Today, it kind of looks like a thin veil of ice, a gray splotch clinging to the northern face of the mountain. That it's retreating year after year is, sadly, not surprising nor unique. But here's what is surprising. As the glacier melts, it leaves behind this deposit of strange, sickly sweet-smelling debris. Piles and piles of stuff that's been trapped inside this glacier for hundreds of years. Maybe from a distance, it kind of looks like seaweed that's washed up on shore. But it's not seaweed. It's not until you start kind of working your way through that agglomeration that you realize it's all locust bodies. I'm Abby Peralt, and this is Atlas Obscura, a daily celebration of some of the most strange, wondrous, and extraordinary places. Today we're digging into this enormous pile of bugs, dead, decomposing bugs. And what we'll find is nothing short of a forgotten species, some serious entomological drama, and an opera. After this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. See, grasshoppers, they're coated like most insects in a waxy layer. And that does an incredible job of picking up spices. If you were to present me with a bug, roasted and salted, let's say. A little bit of curry, a little bit of garlic powder, whatever it is you like. I'd eat it. For reasons I won't go into today, I've experimented with sautéing some fly larvae, and I've tried more flavors of cricket chips than I care to admit. But Jeff Lockwood is next level. Well, to prepare grasshoppers properly, first of all, you want to collect them from a place that hasn't had pesticides, blah, blah, blah. And then I recommend you palm. Jeff is an entomologist, an insect expert. He's written a few books and is now a professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming. And Jeff went into especially great detail talking about cooking up grasshoppers. And then break off the hind legs because that's like eating little toothpicks, right? They kind of get stuck in your teeth. And that's because in addition to roasting them and sautéing them, he's also been studying grasshoppers for a few decades. I guess being an entomologist is like, you know, being in the mafia. You never really get out. Not quite sure if that checks out. But Jeff is really dedicated to his work. And he really does love insects. There's a kind of playfulness, a kind of wonder that comes with working with these creatures. And, you know, you can sort of leave the field, but that sense of curiosity, wonder, fascination, 
enchantment, I think, stays with you. It was while he was working in Wyoming that Jeff became especially enchanted with this one mysterious, almost mythical insect. It was almost like an entomological Bigfoot. No one had come in contact with it for almost a century, but some claimed it was still out there, hiding in plain sight. Enter stage left, the Rocky Mountain Locust. This is an opera about locusts. And that soprano you hear? She's our protagonist, the Rocky Mountain Locust. This is an opera about the Rocky Mountain Locust, who has returned from extinction as a singing spirit who haunts the dogged scientist obsessed with solving the mystery of her disappearance. So many devastating grasshoppers. Yep, this opera was written by none other than a grasshopper expert, Jeff Lockwood, and composed by Anne Gutso, a music professor at the University of Wyoming. Let me set the scene. There's this locust flitting across the stage in a shimmering gold outfit, which, let me just say, is very cool. I would 100% wear it. And there's a scientist who's dressed in all khaki. He's kind of chasing her around with a butterfly net until he realizes she's not just any old insect. Quick tangent on grasshoppers versus locusts. Locusts are a particular kind of grasshopper, Unlike typical grasshoppers, locusts have these aggressive alter egos that come out when they're crowded together, transforming them into these hungrier, hornier, migratory versions of their solitary selves that can take to the sky in enormous swarms. Which is maybe the most legendary part of the Rocky Mountain locusts' history. I think the most amazing thing about these locusts has to be their numbers. So there was a swarm in the 1890s, well-documented by a very reliable scientist, a swarm that would have contained more than a trillion insects. It took five continuous days to pass over his location, which was in western Nebraska. If you put those locusts into a square, right, so instead of a long stream of locusts, you just kind of bunched them up into a big square, they would have covered the state of Wyoming border to border. Just sit with that for a second. A Wyoming-sized cloud of locusts blocking out the sun the sound of trillions of flapping wings crackling across the landscape. And this swarm was hungry. The cloud would descend and devour everything in sight. Crops, fabric draped over the crops to protect them, and according to some accounts, wool off sheep's backs. Farmers responded with a vengeance. They tried everything from using actual dynamite to, I guess, try to blow up the locusts, to building these wild contraptions called hopper dozers that were almost like sticky tractors that they hoped the locusts would get stuck to as they moved across the land. None of it worked. So 
What went wrong? How did a 130-mile-long cloud of locusts disappear completely? In the opera, it's framed sort of like a murder mystery. For a while, there were a few theories floating around about who the killer might be. But for the most part, scientists didn't really have a good answer. They didn't have evidence. But Jeff had come across some old geological accounts of a few glaciers scattered throughout the Rockies that had all these grasshoppers frozen inside of them. So imagine this swarm of locusts being blown up uh, a mountain valley. Um, You know, you're talking about hundreds of billions, or at least tens of billions in a regular size swarm. So, you know, losing a few on, on the ice is just no big deal, right? <laughs> you can spare them. So Jeff and his team went out to visit these glaciers one summer. But there were a few problems. At one site, the glaciers had moved and melted so much that the grasshopper parts they found were all pretty badly decomposed or crushed up. At another site, they found intact specimens, but they weren't Rocky Mountain locusts. For a while, it seemed like a bust. But then, Jeff got a call from a geologist. He'd found what looked like fully intact grasshoppers that seemed like they could be locusts while working at this one glacier in Wyoming. Knife Point Glacier. And he brought them to Jeff in a cooler. And boy, it looked promising. I mean, there were some almost whole bodies in there. We got all excited. So they went up to Knife Point with their device. What would we call it? A solar-powered frozen grasshopper extractor. And uh, we finally kind of hit the mother load. The mother load of dead locusts. So they extracted insect bodies and brought them back to the lab. And they confirmed that they were the legendary Rocky Mountain locusts, some from hundreds of years ago. And using radiocarbon dating, they also determined that the locusts had been swarming over the Rockies for centuries. If this were a murder mystery, they had some evidence. They had a timeline. Now all they had to do was put the pieces together. And so we got to thinking, well, what, what else could it be? And it was actually in a, this conversation with my research associate while driving in the truck back from one of our expeditions that it began to come together. And that was, wait a minute, right? We've been looking at the wrong scale, right? We need to think of this sort of a chain being as strong as its weakest link. This locust would pass through these ecological bottlenecks, where they would be concentrated into very limited habitats, these well-drained river valleys. These valleys were more than just places the locusts flew over. They were their breeding grounds, sort of a cradle. Enormously abundant species can actually be extremely fragile during these particular times and places. Sanctuaries were bottled and 
This was their habitat for hundreds of years. It was also the same land that settlers cleared, irrigated, and farmed, wiping out the Rocky Mountain locust by taking these sanctuaries as their own. And in doing so, Jeff says, they destroyed a species and possibly a whole ecological process. If you head out into Custer National Forest, outside of Cook City, Montana, you can see Grasshopper Glacier today. But it's just a sliver of what it once was. Now, in recent years, thanks to climate change, those glaciers in the Rockies are melting at a breathtaking rate, absolutely breathtaking. And enormous numbers of locusts are washing out in these these gigantic, I think knee-deep piles of rotting locust bodies. Here's the thing about this story. It's easy to get lost in how charming it all is, in the lightness of an opera about arthropods, and the weirdness of them emerging after years having been trapped in ice. But there's a lot of heavy stuff buried in this glacier. A history of colonization, of ecological destruction, and a climate crisis that's now actually contributing to unprecedented locust swarms in other parts of the world. And that's not lost on Jeff. There's this part at the end of the opera where the locust says, referring to itself, plainly an enemy then, maybe a teacher now. What have you learned? I mean, maybe the most obvious lesson is that numerical abundance does not assure survival. (laughs) And so you've got these highly mobile, highly omnivorous, they eat almost anything, right? Highly fecund, reproduce like rabbits or like locusts, uh, creatures, which is not a bad description of humans, right? And they died, (laughs) they disappeared. The other part of the story is this, this question of what did we lose? We lost a phenomenon that will never again be seen on this planet. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Dylan Thuris, Sarah Wyman, and John Delore. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by Luz Fleming. I'm Abby Peralt. Thanks for joining. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. 
Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. 